welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and I really wish I had a nice bee chick for you. A nice bee chick? Chick. It's mm. a cough remedy. Oh, that would be nice. Because you're still struggling with this thing that's going around. Everyone's getting it. I hope I don't get it. But I also hope that you don't get it. <laughs> My mom has, has it for like a week now. She had a pretty high fever, too. Yeah, it was pretty rough for about a week, and now it's just sort of a lingering cough Yeah, for the last two weeks. Well, you guys be safe out there because there is a whole lot going around. might not be COVID anymore so much, but there's you know, flus um, and... All the other things, yeah. respiratory viruses. Yeah. So. so maybe keep wearing your mask. Just going to throw that out there. Hand sanitize a lot. I mean, if you're sick, you definitely should just not go to work if you can well, avoid yes. it. Well, yes. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> so, but you know what? Sometimes you got to go and do what you got to do. Exactly. And just hope for the best. But anyways, um, yeah, so we are back with a whole new case, which we will talk about in a minute after question time. Yes. So it is my week to ask a question. So Trisha, um, if you woke up tomorrow and were suddenly fluent in another language, what language would you want it to be? Greek. Okay. Why Greek? I just have always wanted to go to Greece and it's my favorite food. Mm. and it seems like a really kind of tough one. So if I could just bypass the studying of the Greek language, then I would want to do that. And it's still relevant. Like, they still speak Greek in Greece. It's true. When I went there with my college choir, we sang a song or two in Greek. I I don't remember any of it. Yeah. I mean, they also speak English. Um, I spoke to a couple of Greek people and when I was in Ireland, and they said basically, if you were born after 1980, it was a required, you know, second language. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you know. So, anyways, what about you? I would want it to be sign language. Oh, okay. Yeah, the been, American sign language. I guess American sign language. Yeah, because <laughs> um, I've always it's something that's always interested me, and you know, hearing loss is a big thing in my family, hmm. and so I have a lot of, I guess, empathy for, you know, the hearing impaired and being able to speak in sign language. I think would be helpful. Did you see that movie that was out recently? Oh gosh, it was called so good. Um, it was about um, a hearing daughter that had deaf parents and a deaf brother. Oh my gosh, what was it called? It was so good. Mm-hmm. I think it won like an Academy Award. I think I know the one you're talking about, but I don't remember what it's called. And oh. I haven't seen it. Oh, but. I'm going to have to like figure that out and then we'll, I'll say it mm-hmm. <laughs> next because it's super good if you see it. Um, you should watch it. Okay. Um, especially if you're interested in sign language. I will definitely do that. All right. Good question, Courtney. Yes. And um, all right. So it's my killer this time. It is. And your clue last time was that it's a big one. It is. So big in stature and big in most everybody knows who he is. And that is Big Ed Kemper. Ah, Ed Kemper. Which, you know, I was a little hesitant to do because... He's so vocal and has been interviewed a bunch of times and, you know, was really um, important in John Douglas and the FBI Behavioral Unit profiling serial killers. So I was like, is there a whole lot we can talk about that people don't already know? But we're going to give it a try. We are. I think we'll have some new things to say. I hope so. I mean, he's very interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that he does open up so much or he, or he did open up so much um, – is it's kind of refreshing, I suppose, if you can believe what he says. 
That's true. Yeah. But as with all of these um, serial killers, one must take what they say with a grain of salt. Always. Yes. yes. That's very true. Okay. So let's go. And the book we're using um, for this analysis is Ed Kemper, Conversations with a Killer, The Shocking True Story of the Co-Ed Butcher by Dary Matera, D-A-R-Y Matera. So props to the um, researcher for that book. <clears throat> Edmund Emil Kemper III. So that's one other thing. I'm going to try to maybe say Ed Sr. and Ed Jr., even though it's like Ed Jr., Ed Sr., and Ed the third, but uh, just to kind of differentiate them, because you know they're the same names, it gets tough. So bear with me. I'll yes. try to make it obvious who I'm talking about between the two of them. All right, Edmund Emil Kemper the third was born on December December eighteenth, nineteen forty eight, and he weighed thirteen pounds. Ouch! That's a huge bitch. Uh, huge. <laughs> uh, and it was in Burbank, California, to Edmund the second and Clarnell Elizabeth Stage. So Ed's parents did not get along. Clarnell was apparently a very unhappy woman who made everyone else's lives unpleasant. Her husband, who worked with nuclear energy, famous, famously said this, Suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. And also, 369 days and nights of fighting on the front was better than living with her. That is some unhappy household. Right. I'm, yeah, grateful I had my very loving mother. But after Ed II, um, or Ed Sr., we're going to call him, served his country, he became an electrician, and Clarnell thought that a blue-collar husband was beneath her and constantly rallied against his career and his station in life. Ed had two sisters, um, Ed Jr., so he was the middle child. So, you know, that always is, is, is something that kids have to deal with as well, that middle child syndrome. Um Ed, Ed Jr. was a, or sorry, Ed Sr. was a big guy at six foot eight, and Clarnell was six foot. So this is most likely why Ed um, Jr. was such a big dude. Yeah, prime genetics. Yeah, those are huge parents. And he was born at 13 pounds. I imagine his sisters were tall too, but I didn't look into that. Um, but the two parents did not stay together very long, and the children lived basically with Clarnell. Um, Ed Jr. moved to Van Nuys, California. Um, sorry. Ed Sr. moved to Van Nuys, California to start a new life away from Clarnell and his kids. So living with Clarnell was not easy. She was a heavy drinker. She had a big chip on her shoulder the size of California. And I've seen in multiple places where it's thought that she might have suffered from borderline personality disorder. Courtney, we've talked about narcissistic mothers. Do you have any tidbits on possible borderline mothers there is a lot that could be said about potential impact of having a parent with borderline personality disorder um, and so kind of just as a quick review so a person with bpd um, will likely struggle with self-image issues difficulty managing emotions and behavior and have a pattern of unstable relationships and so for a child the constant uncertainty and shifting between like extreme emotional states can be very, very difficult. Um, and I think the biggest one, so one of those key features of borderline personality disorder is splitting, right? So shifting between these intense adoration and sort of hatred or dismissal in relationships. And so in the parent-child relationship, this would look like, you know, one day mom is very loving and attentive 
attentive, possibly even over-involved, you know, in your life as a child. And the next day, mom is cold and uninterested and possibly even mean or abusive. Um, And so being exposed to this can lead a child to feeling as though they have to walk on eggshells, that they're never good enough for their mother, um, and will probably have a lot of difficulty forming trusting relationships with others. And then additionally, a person with BPD often struggles with extreme mood swings, angry outbursts, and um, at times like controlling behaviors. And they um, often engage in self-harm and suicidal behavior. So a child growing up around these behaviors being modeled will likely not learn how to appropriately manage emotions, set boundaries, or get their needs met. Yeah, I imagine that's um, very confusing, not knowing what parent you're going to come home to, you know. Exactly. And it can shift even from like minute to minute sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then they also tend to um, engage in substance abuse. Right, which is a a whole nother um, just layer. Right. Okay. Well, Ed, Ed, um, we're now talking about Little Ed. Little Ed has reflected that, quote, she loved me in her way. And despite all the violent screaming and yelling arguments we had, I loved her too. Now, when they all moved to their new house, Ed had to sleep in the basement. The basement was very dark and you couldn't turn on a light until you were all the way in it. Ed was very scared of this basement. Quote, my mother and my sisters would go to bed upstairs where I used to go to bed. I had to go down to the basement. Why am I going to the basement? I'm going to hell and they're going to heaven. Courtney and I watched a really good documentary on YouTube very recently. Um, It's called The Co-Ed Killer Mind of a Monster. And in this documentary, there are audio cassettes of interviews with one of Ed's sisters who told the psychologist how scared little Ed was of the basement and that he would scream in his sleep. Um, If Ed complained to his mother, she would smack him upside the head. Quote, to cope, Ed spent long winter nights staring into the fires of hell, the furnace grate that shot eerie shadows on the walls. He made bargains with the resident demons to spare his life. Courtney, I don't think we've discussed what chronic fear can do to a child. Can you give us your thoughts on this and, and what's starting to maybe happen to little Ed? Yeah, so when a person experiences fear, their sympathetic nervous system is activated, triggering what's sort of commonly known as the fight, flight, or freeze response. And this makes your body have things like an increased heart rate, um, high blood pressure, breathing gets heavier, senses sharpen, and energizing hormones like adrenaline are released into the bloodstream. So now imagine experiencing this feeling for eight hours a night, every night when you're a kid, um, and calling out for help that never comes. This is kind of what little Ed was going through, right? And so over time, this can lead to anxiety, difficulty managing emotions, um, difficulty handling small stressors, and feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. You know, for Ed, he, he learned also from his mom's responses to his fear that, like, his fear was invalid and he couldn't count on other people to help him. It's really sad. It is really sad. Apparently when confronted, Clarnell said that she kept Ed in the basement because she thought he was going to molest his sisters. I'm not sure where she got that from. I haven't come across anything about him wanting to do that. Um, I guess he did tell his sisters that he wanted to kiss one of his teachers, but that he would have to kill her to do so. 
Courtney, what would you think if a young child told you he wanted to kiss someone, possibly a mother-like figure, like a teacher, but death would have to be involved? I mean, that would certainly be cause for concern, um, but I would really want to gather more information to determine what kind of concern I should have. For example, uh, let's say with additional probing, I might learn that he thinks the teacher would need to be dead because Ed had such low self-esteem that he doesn't think that a living person would ever like him enough to kiss him. Um, so my response to that, for example, would be very different than if Ed clearly stated that he was only attracted to dead bodies or was fantasizing about killing his teacher so that he could kiss her. Um, if it was the latter, and Ed being so young at that time, I think he was only, what, like seven or eight when he said that, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I was his therapist, I would probably focus really on helping him differentiate between fantasy and reality and sort of finding healthy and safe safe ways to express these thoughts and feelings. Is this a common thing you've heard children say, anything like this, or is this a little bit out of the ordinary of children that you see? I mean, it's a little bit out of the ordinary, um, but sometimes kids just say weird things Mm -hmm. and they don't actually mean anything. Um, But knowing this story, Mm -hmm. I would not want to ignore this. Gotcha. you know, around him as a child. About this time, Ed started to very much loathe his mother. Quote, I wanted to kill my mother since I was eight years old. I'm not proud of that. I guess part of the reason Clarnell may have been so harsh with Ed was that she was worried that he might be homosexual and she was attempting to make a man out of him. She felt she needed to toughen him up. Ed's parents would fight over Ed. Ed was at one time very close with his father and had something akin to hero worship, especially in regards to his war stories. And the girls in Clarnell were a tight-knit group. Clarnell didn't like how Ed Sr. favored little Ed, and Ed Sr. didn't like how the girls all ganged up on his son. When Ed Sr. left home for good, the final time, little Ed was feeling very much abandoned. Ed started to wish not only his family members were dead, but that everyone in the world would just die. Courtney? Now, I believe Ed was um, nine years old uh, when dad left for good. Um, Just to point out that sort of this is the age we're talking about. Um, And so it's not necessarily abnormal for a child to think about killing someone who has been cruel to them. You know, their brains have not fully grasped the permanence of death or the more abstract realities of killing somebody. Um, So they only think of death from a very sort of shallow viewpoint. Uh, sort of, I think of it like, you know, the, the good guys kill the bad guys in kids' movies all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something they see as like a just punishment. Um, but, you know, take that and then throw on his dad leaving and he lost, you know, the one person that he sort of felt was his ally and he was left with his, alone with his mom, you know, the quote villain mm-hmm. um, and no way to stop her. So I imagine there was a strong feeling of hopelessness that went along with, you know, being abandoned by his dad. Right. Well, Clarnell remarried a 45-year-old plumber who she also considered beneath her, and he and Ed Jr. did not hit it off. Ed even remembers a fishing trip where he thought about killing him with an iron bar, and then he would take his car and go live with his dad. This was when Ed was about 13, but he was so big that he could drive the car just fine. Their marriage only lasted 18 months, and then the family is now in Helena, Montana, so just they've moved. 
there's a well-known story about Ed, um, about him cutting the head on the head and hands off his sister's dolls. Now he says it was because they broke his Mattel Fanner 50 cap gun. And if you just rip the head off a Barbie, you can put it back on. So to truly break the doll, he had to cut it off in pieces. Now, maybe I was an evil child, but I probably did stuff like this to my little sister. Sorry, Jess. Um, and that's all it was, payback, trying to make them upset. But others have speculated that this was a precursor to what Ed would become. I'm not sure, maybe both. But I don't think the real upsetting behavior began until he started to behead cats. Yes, he was angry with one of their pets, and he beheaded it and put it into a suitcase that, suitcase that his mother found later. He then buried a different cat alive and then dug it up cut its head off and mounted it on a spike. Um, I think we can all agree that this is a little alarming. Courtney? Yes, uh, this is definitely something to be highly concerned about. Any sort of intentional animal cruelty, particularly including like torture and dismemberment, is a huge red flag for future violence because it shows that Ed, even at a young age, had very little respect or regard for life um, or for the suffering of another creature. This is just a random thought. Do you think that these um, killers or, or kids in general who do animal cruelty and killing, do they usually start with their own pets or do you think that they target other animals in the neighborhood? I think it depends. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Ed's mother would beat him savagely with the belt for all of the things that he did to the pets. Um, quote, my mother was there to beat me. She was there to humiliate me. She was there to use me as an example of how inferior men were. Sometimes when Ed felt guilty about what he had done, he would have his sisters tie him up to a chair and pretend to be electrocuted or gassed to death for his sins. This did not satisfy his older sister, whoever, who tried to rid the world of Ed, not one time, but twice. The first time she pushed him in front of a train, but he got out of the way in time. And the other time, she pushed him into the deep end of the swimming pool, knowing he couldn't swim. But I guess his instincts got him out of there and he was able to get away or get out of the water. Courtney, what do you think here? It kind of seems like we have not but one, but two violent, if not homicidal siblings. You know, one thing <clears throat> to remember is that Ed's siblings were also growing up with potentially a borderline mother um, and all the things that go with that. So I'm not surprised that there was mental illness um, or other violence in the home. Um, now, in my research looking into this, I haven't been able to find the exact ages that Ed and his sister were when these, you know, quote, attempted murders occurred. Um, but that does matter. You know, if his sister was under the age of 10, then it would be more likely that she was kind of acting out of anger at her brother but did not fully grasp the severity or permanence of what she was doing, kind of like we were talking before um, about, you know, Ed envisioning killing, mm -hmm. you know, his mom. Um, but if she was a teenager or older, um, then that might be a different story. I think we just, I don't have that information. I would have to, to look back in the notes to see when he was killing these cats. But I think it was when he was, um, you know, nine or ten. So she probably was a young teen, I would assume, but... Mm -hmm. Can't say for sure. Right. Um, but when he was 13, he shot a neighbor's dog. This really caused an upheaval and police were called and he became a pariah for such a senseless and heartless act. Ed claims that when he was in his um, teens, he was always daydreaming and most of his fantasies were very violent. Quote, I always felt like a social outcast. I never managed to find my place. I had problems in public schools. I changed schools several times. 
He also reflects that during this time, he was afraid of girls. Not afraid like how Ted Bundy was, but, you know, unsure on how to handle the situation of having a girlfriend. He had one who was more mature than he was. She wanted a physical relationship, but he didn't know how to handle the emotions that went along with it. On Thanksgiving Day in 1963, Ed Jr. ran away from his mom's house in Montana by stealing his mom's car and then taking a bus to L.A. He asked his dad to come get him from the bus station and told him he could no longer live with his mom. He left because he could not stop the fantasies he was having about killing her. Ed's dad said Ed could stay with him and his new bride for a while. The new woman in the picture was a glamorous and beautiful woman who little Ed creeped out. And I, they show pictures of this, and she was, like, gorgeous. Um, very, um, I don't want to say Marilyn Monroe-like, but kind of. On a Christmas trip with his dad to his grandparents' house in North Fork, California that year, um, little Ed was handed off. His dad left him with his grandparents and took off. He did not warn Ed that he was going to do that. After he left little Ed... He changed his phone number, and then it was unlisted. Ed could no longer contact his father. During this time, Clarnell did contact Ed's father and told him about the animal killings, and she said, quote, You're taking a risk by leaving him with your parents. You may be surprised to wake up one morning and learn they have been killed. Courtney, I'm starting to get a little disgusted with Ed Sr. now. His mom is a terrible caregiver, but at least she hadn't abandoned him at this time. What do you think? I think both of his parents are pretty terrible. Um, you know, having worked with, with kids and families, um, who have very severe mental health and behavioral issues, I can empathize and understand how parents can get burnt out, um, and overwhelmed trying to care for, for them. And to be honest, some people just don't have the capacity to be the kind of parents that kids like this need, but that doesn't take away how much emotional harm comes from just disappearing from your child's life. Well, and leaving them with, I mean, if they can't handle them, I can't see why he would think his parents could, but whatever. I was not there. Ed was given a rifle while at his grandparents' house, and he used it to shoot everything he could. His fantasies were continuing to grow. His killing of all the animals he could wasn't enough, even at this young age. Quote, I knew long before I started killing that I would be killing, and it was going to end up like that. The fantasies were too strong. They were going on too long and were too elaborate. So Ed is now living permanently at his grandparents' house, um, and they were 72 and 66 years of age and responsible for raising a giant 15-year-old animal killer with a murderous fantasy life. Ed started up at Sierra Joint Union High School in Toll House, California. He was quiet, got average grades, and laid low. His grandparents did start to get concerned with all the animals he was killing, so they took away his twenty-two rifle and hid it from him. And at this point, Ed was now six foot four and two hundred pounds. Courtney, Ed felt that killing animals was a good outlet for his rage and homicidal fantasies. Do you think, knowing what we do, that had he kept his gun, future events may have been avoided, or do you think the path was set and he was already traveling down it? I think that, you know, hiding the gun was really kind of a moot point. You know, Ed said himself that he knew he was going to be a killer before he started killing. Um, And so perhaps shooting small animals was enough to satisfy him for a short time. But I think he would have eventually gotten bored with this and needed to up the ante no matter what. The main um, animals that bothered Grandma was he would just kill songbirds. And she didn't like that. I don't think she cared so much about the other ones, but... 
Um, so I guess Maud, Grandma, was much like his mother in the way that she would boss around her husband and would make Ed feel like crap because of how much he ate. Um, the author of the book pointed out that it shouldn't have been an issue of how much he ate because they lived on like a working farm. There was plenty of food, but there you go. He was also not allowed to go hang out with his friends or go into town to watch a movie or do anything. This isolation fueled his anger even more, and he no longer had to live. Hit, or he no longer had his rifle to take out his aggression with. He started to have fantasies now of decapitating his grandmother. He did, however, find his grandfather's forty-five pistol while he was looking for his own gun. Ed would constantly check this hiding place to be sure that the gun was there, you know, in case he needed it. When school let out for the summer, he went to visit his mom, but that only lasted two weeks. He was then forced to be. Um, he then went back to his grandparents' house, who made him stay at the farm all day with no real reprieve. Couldn't go anywhere. Ed could not please his grandmother. She nagged at him all the time, and his grandpa was no help. In fact, Ed speculated that he may even have had dementia, Grandpa. Uh, Maud started to sense that Ed hated her. She would catch him glaring at her and maybe knew a bit about what was going on in his head. Obviously, the fact that they took his gun away because of how much killing he had been doing gave off warning bells as well. She even started to take the pistol Ed had found with her at all times so that he couldn't get his hands on it. Maud was a fiction writer for young adults. One day in 1964, while she was working on her typewriter, she noticed him glaring at her and she told him to stop. Ed decided to take action. He had convinced his grandpa by this time to allow him access to his rifle again, you know, as long as he didn't kill the songbirds, and he grabbed it off the wall. He pretended to take it like he was going to go shooting. Maud said, don't shoot the birds, which only fueled his fire. He left the house, turned around, took aim, and shot his grandmother in the back of the head. He then shot her twice more before he was done. He then realized what he, quote, had to do. He waited until his grandfather got home from wherever he had been, and when he wasn't looking, he shot him in the back of the head as well. He later claimed he killed his grandfather because he didn't want him to see what had happened to his wife. Courtney, before we stop for the day, do you read into anything about Ed shooting his grandparents in the back? We hear how it's more personal for the person you're killing to see you do so. Why do you think Ed chose to kill both of them in this fashion? It is much harder to do something cruel when looking into somebody's eyes, you know, because of that eye contact and that facial expression, um, they really humanize the victim. Um, and it's just a lot harder to do something when you can see that, that fear or that horror on their face. Um, and so shooting from behind allows kind of some semblance of anonymity and ability to to see the victim as an object, you know, instead of like my grandmother who is terrified of me right now. And after all, even if Ed was already showing strong psychopathic traits, he was still just a 15-year-old kid. So we didn't uh, really get into diagnosis with him. I forgot to um, put that part in here. So, um, <laughs> I'm just going to ask you, you didn't have time to prepare this one. What do you think's going on here with 15-year-old Ed, um, who has now just shot his grandparents and everything he's been through? What do you think he, what would you diagnose him with? I think at this point in time, I would probably go with something like reactive attachment disorder. Um, given that, you know, violent and unstable environment growing up with his mother and the abuse that he endured, 
and the abandonment of his father, um, that causes, you know, attachment wounds from very early on. Um, and kind of as a child, that really messes with you and it messes with your system um, and makes it hard to build trusting relationships, makes it hard to connect with others, makes it hard to know what is safe to do and not safe to do. Um, and it's not uncommon for kids who have reactive attachment disorder to have thoughts about killing their caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, or sort of at this point, you know, he's 15, he's kind of been through these traumas, um, and here he is now having, you know, killed his grandparents. I think that that is where I would go. Now, we all know the story of Ed Kemper, but, um, well, maybe we don't, but you and I know the story of Ed Kemper. Were you, when you first heard it, I don't know if you can remember, were you surprised that he killed his grandparents? Was that something that you were like, holy shit, they don't usually do this? Or were you like, oh, that makes sense? Mm, I think I was a little bit surprised, mm-hmm. um, but more about the age at which he did it. Gotcha. I think I would have. it would have been less shocking if he'd been maybe like in his early 20s or something like that right let that build up a little more because I mean he wasn't with his grandparents that long in the grand scheme of things before he took them both out right yeah like about a year or so so okay well that is where we're going to stop um for the day and I'm not sure if this is going to be a three-parter or four-parter um we'll just have to see because I'm still navigating the world of Ed Kemper and he does give us a lot to work with. Yes, he does. Yeah, so he's very interesting. If you haven't heard of him, um, there's a lot you can find on him because he, he talks a lot. Yes, yes. So, all right, I'm going to handle the social media now. Here it goes. Um, if you have any questions or just want to say hey, you can always email us at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Um, Instagram is our biggest. Um, we almost have 600 followers Woohoo! Um, so that is at Addicted to M podcast, and then all the others: YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter um, at Addicted to Murder Podcast. And please like, tell your friends, um, leave a nice comment for us or constructive criticism. You know, sometimes we don't know if we're uh, doing something that's annoying until you guys tell us. That's true. (laughs) So anyways, all right, well, um, everyone stay safe and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.